Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. In this episode, I talk with Jeff Waguna, co-founder and CEO of Kuju Coffee, a leading pour-over coffee brand targeted to the outdoor market. Jeff was very generous with his time sharing the origin story for Kuju Coffee, their branding and positioning strategy, and explaining their approach to wholesale distribution. He also talks about the importance of knowing your margins, knowing your production capacity, and why they chose to manufacture in-house instead of using a co-packer. Jeff is an awesome guy that really brought it for this interview. Enjoy. All right. Hey, Jeff. How you doing, man? Thanks for joining me. I'm doing well. Glad, glad to be here. Hey, um, so you're the CEO, one of the founders of uh, Kuju Coffee, and uh, we're really excited to talk to you and kind of hear, hear the backstory, hear your journey. Let's, uh, let's actually start off uh, with a little bit about yourself. Um, this is a company you founded with your brother. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It was in 2015. We were on a camping trip to Red Rock Canyon and uh, everything around us was beautiful. And we just remember the instant coffee we had just didn't live up to the experience. So that's kind of like the, the small epiphany uh, that happened. So if if you check out the company or our brand story, which is completely true, is uh, founded by two Eagle Scout brothers who got tired of instant coffee while camping. And so that's kind of what started it all. Um, since then, it's, I guess you could say it's worked out. It's been an interesting journey, to say the least, for the coffee world and the outdoor world. But um, yeah, that's how it got started. So um, who, who's older, you or your brother? Uh, I'm older. Yeah, I, I'm the eldest. We actually have another brother. Um, and uh, so I'm actually the eldest of, of three. He's the youngest. Okay. And uh, Eagle Scouts, is he an Eagle Scout too? Yeah, we are both Eagle Scouts. Uh, we were in different troops growing up, but that's, you know, I think scouting is a, a pretty powerful institution in the U.S. So you, you get a lot of, uh, a certain amount of cultural alignment, I think, when, when two people are Eagle Scouts. So, yeah. Okay, very cool. And uh, where where'd you guys grow up? Uh, we grew up in Southern California. So I think most people across the country uh, would probably be more familiar with the area of Long Beach, but the city specifically is is the city of Cerritos, which is yeah, it's really just maybe five, 10 minutes from Long Beach. Okay, cool. 
Cool. And why don't you tell us just a little bit about your 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 work history? You know, what you what you do once you got out of school, and um, what did you do before you you started Kuju Coffee? Yeah, before all this, I was out of school. I was a sales rep for Johnson Johnson. I was selling medical devices, and that was a, a pretty pretty hard crash course in just how to sell. Uh, I would walk into doctors' offices uh, nine times out of ten cold, unless you built a relationship, and just take my t- or find my time to you know chat it up with uh, folks in the front desk, and eventually you know try to speak with the doctors and keeping them stock on certain. Uh, J&J product. The company specifically was called LifeScan. And I'd just be on the road all the time. Um, so I didn't even really have an office, had a company car and everything. Uh, uh-huh. And I, I didn't love it because I knew that that category of work was phasing out. It's not so much salesmanship as much these days that drives revenue. Um, and then over time, I gave it a go at a first company uh, that didn't work out, but it moved on, did some uh, work for a display advertising company. Uh, I got fired from that because I didn't do well. I was t- still too distraught from my experience at the first company not working out. But then I landed at this uh, fair trade greeting card company um, mm-hmm. that was in just a, in a handful of Whole Foods stores. And that ended up being a, a great experience. I had helped take that company uh, from a few stores to national distribution and Whole Foods. And that's when I realized that, you know, I, coming, I was living in San Francisco at the time, uh, that, that physical goods, consumer packaged goods was what I was probably more um, interested in and, and able to be successful at. So that was a, a, a great job. I was supposed to transition into the CEO role after that but negotiations fell through so then i had to resign so i you know so i'm I'm, you know being fired once because performance and then performance was good at this this company Uh but because alignment wasn't there i was also let go um and then that's around the same time we were on this camping trip and and we had that epiphany with instant coffee just not being good And, and we said okay well maybe this is the time to give it give it a try so i think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be uh, you know, you can definitely start it from a place of privilege, but so often it's it, it's driven by a, a strong need to just get something done or or make money. I think for me, it's probably a, a general mix of a, a lot of things. But that's that's kind of the, the in a nutshell my path to this. It's not like I was working for an outdoor company or doing coffee too much before this or anything. Sure, sure. Um, but I'm sure you know your your experience with those other companies was re- was relevant. Uh, you know specifically about selling. You know I, that first job seems like you know learning how to go in cold, talk to doctors, and and sell them. That sounds very valuable. Yeah, that was definitely valuable to to build up a skin to just say you know I'm going to ask somebody a million times until they say yes, and it, it you know doesn't phase me if they say no a, a million times. Uh, I, I don't know how valuable maybe the other experiences were directly um, because we're at a place now at Kuju Coffee where we're, we're scaled enough past a lot of the stuff that I had done. But I think if I learned anything, it was just one, realizing that I was an entrepreneur, which is why I was just like not necessarily happy holding a job sure. uh, for a prolonged period of time, but also just the grit and the perseverance. Um, of getting laid off or getting fired, working hard and realizing you just keep going. And that's, that's what it is as a, a, a founder. So 
So looking at, at your LinkedIn uh, profile, um, so was your previous job, was it with uh, Good Paper? Is that right? Uh, before Kuja Coffee, yes, I was with Good Paper. That's the fair trade greeting card company. Yeah, with the Whole Foods deal. And so it's, it seems like it's about that time that you started taking a hard look at CPG products and, and maybe started an interest in maybe launching that. Um, you'd mentioned that you were interested in it. Was there anything particular that, that stood out to you or was attractive to you that, that drew you to CPG? Yeah, what I liked about CPG is that it's actually a very marketing-driven industry because... The, the truth is there's so much package goods out there that is not too differentiated. And that's why you have shelves of like various types of bread and yogurts and, and so forth. Um, but at the same time, I was actually always fascinated by, by the idea of uh, monetizing uh, commodities. Um, so like the idea of a Duracell battery existing alongside an Energizer battery. I mean, they're both batteries, but, but they're different products. It's just so fascinating to me. Uh-huh. It dawned on me that I think a physical good, um, and if it's a commodity like coffee, it could be a really great product to build a a brand um, and build something, uh, build a culture that could be uh, very culturally relevant, um, where the value is almost in the way that you mold culture. Whereas if you're Google, you know so much of your market cap is based on actual product functionality, but if you're a Starbucks. Um, you know, you, how, how are you really that different from every other coffee shop? I mean, they, they are, but it's, it's more through the marketing and positioning, not, not the actual coffee uh, itself. And, and that's, that was always fascinating to me and it continues to be, uh, to this day. Um, I, you know, as, as far as physical products are concerned, you know, I don't think anyone has an appreciation for the complexity of, of how a supply chain can affect a number of elements of a of packaged goods business, but but that that in, in itself is also so dynamic. I think it's 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 interesting and fascinating as well. Yeah, so it seems like the the marketing, the differentiation. I mean, you guys have nailed it. You've got fantastic branding. You know, even just the the whole feel of of everything that you do, the way you phrase things on your on your website and on your product. And so that comes, uh, you know, I think out of this, this desire to differentiate. Is that how you thought about it initially? Or have you, in other words, have you always positioned Kuju Coffee this way? Was that kind of how you started? It was. Yeah, we, we were the first pour over, single serve pour over in the U.S. at scale. We had debuted at uh, an outdoor trade show and shortly thereafter went, went into REI. And pre that, we did a Kickstarter to just test our business chops and everything. I think our tagline at the time was brew fresh anywhere, but it was all outdoor photos and, and so forth. So we've evolved since then, but the core positioning and strategy has stayed the same. And the challenge now is actually less so how, how can we expand out of that, but how can we go deeper um, and, and build even more equity uh, through investing into our brand roots and and it's a great it's a great channel to be in because not a lot of coffee companies um, thought the outdoor market was worth the time a few years ago because it was too small um, but it's worked well for us it's a very memorable use occasion to be drinking coffee when you're camping and it does build a lot of positive energy and impressions and, and, and brand equity and memories around what you're trying to do so what, what you see is 
uh, nothing more than just an evolution of what we exactly started with. So we've not shifted from that too much, really. And do you think that that positioning was born out of kind of who you and your brother were and that experience of even thinking about the idea, you know, on one of these trips or where did that come from? And was it brewing inside of you for a while or did it kind of just all come together? No, it really was that trip. We were we were on the camping trip and then you wake up in the morning and it's really cold usually. And someone gave me coffee. I think it was Nescafe and I drank it hoping to, you know, when you drink like a nice warm cup of coffee or tea at home, it's kind of the soothing, uh, uh, warming feeling. And it was warming to a certain extent, but it was just disgusting. I think it tasted like fuel or something. Like the thing with instant coffee is it has a very flat uh, flavor profile. So, so it'll hit your palate, but it will stop there. And that's about it. So if you go to higher end coffees, um, you know, specialty coffees or Arabica like we do, um, you're getting a, what I call just a much more dynamic flavor topography and experience. So it, 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 I guess you can say it tickles the senses a lot more and it's, it's just much more, uh, edifying to have that kind of coffee experience when you're outdoors. If you're a coffee person that said five years ago, people might not have been as nerdy about their coffee in San Francisco. They were always, you know, crazy about their coffee. So we really just thought of ourselves as bringing that level of passion about coffee to the outdoor setting. But today, coffee is just such a big thing in general, and it continues to get more specialized, or especially coffee is becoming more popular. So people have really continued to appreciate even further the level of pour over coffee quality that we make accessible for their outdoor adventures. And I think that's why it's worked out. But but you're right, it it is a an, an idea that was rooted in something that was uh, authentically experiential. We didn't go and analyze the market like a consultant and say, Hey, this might be good. And, and I think that's afforded us the ability to be natural with how we build a brand over time. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. So you have this, uh, this great idea uh, and you guys have executed on it, on it pretty well. Um, actually remarkably well. Um, I'm just curious about the first steps, right? So you have this idea, you think it's a good one. Uh, you and your brother, you know, both, both want to do it. What, what did you guys do first and how did you get this thing off the ground? Yeah, what we did first is one, we, we, we had some product samples that we didn't want to touch because we, we weren't able to make them easily. Uh, and we said, let's just kickstart the brand. So we actually kickstarted without really having any product, kind of the whole sell it before you build it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that worked out. And then we used the funds from the Kickstarter to buy really simple like sealing machinery uh, and nitrogen flushing machinery. At the time, it was just this $1,400 machine that you could put on a table from India. But I remember just thinking that was so expensive. Uh, <laughs> I just thought, oh my God, this is $1,400 and I hope this works and I hope it actually arrives. So, and then we found packaging companies and you just make phone calls and say like, can you make something like this with these dimensions? And you start putting things into bags and start sealing. <laughs> by hand uh so in the beginning we could only make maybe a maximum of 1600 pouches a day on an eight-hour day and we had help from craigslist uh you know we had two people who would come in and do it but we were also hand scooping coffee gra- grounds putting them into the filters and then sealing those so all of it was manual and i remember 
you know, staying up and packing for hours at a time all the way till 11 o'clock at night and, and just thinking, this is not what I wanted for my life, but I know this is what we got to do. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until we finally scaled up with machinery, we, we, you know, found an operating partner and now we can, you know, we can do way, way more than that. And we don't ever touch production, at least, um, uh, at least us on, on the management side of this company. So sure. Sure. Yeah. It's different now, but yeah, it's tough. It's tough. This is what I'll say. <laughs> so you, I mean, you mentioned the, the Kickstarter, you know, are, are there any tips that you could give to people who, you know, want to have a successful Kickstarters, you know, so many, it's so easy to, to launch a Kickstarter, you know, it's easy mm -hmm. to put up the page, but it really comes down to, you know, the marketing and getting, getting the press and, and, uh, getting attention, um, is there anything that you guys, that you felt, you know, um, that you guys did particularly well that helped you to have a successful Kickstarter? Yeah, I, I had a friend who was running a company who would help with delayed payments, uh, which helped companies do pre-orders. So the company was called Celery. Um, they had gotten acquired by Indiegogo, but um, he knew tons about Kickstarter stats. And he told me that typically, whatever amount you're trying to raise, you'll need to budget about 20% of that amount uh and have it go towards uh you know production and marketing and everything so if you're trying to raise 100k you need to be prepared to sink about 20k uh but but so that that's the first piece just being realistic of, of the resources that might be required the second thing is actually just start off with as clear a level of intent as possible so we didn't raise a ton we only raised sixteen thousand dollars and most people usually think you have to raise a bunch, but we didn't want to raise that much more because we'd have to fulfill everything. Um, what we were really trying to do was test our chops to get it done, uh, test our chops to get fulfillment done on time, and test our marketing and positioning to see if it actually struck a chord. And it did. So we were able to accomplish the Kickstarter, get it fulfilled, get it done and then move on to the next thing to move towards starting to build a company or a product that might be successful in market. If we had raised 50 to hundred K we might have spent in inordinate amounts of time just fulfilling as opposed to figuring out how to translate the initial set of momentum into a, a product sales process to get it into places like REI. So I think you have to be really clear with your strategic objectives for why you want to do a Kickstarter. Cash is definitely part of it. Um, but there, there are a lot of other reasons you might want to do it. And I think being clear with that is very, very important. Um, and then thirdly, which would be the last thing, is just be clear about your fulfillment. Be, be clear about what you're trying to provide as prizes, uh, what those will cost you, You know, understand your margins. Because we, we were able to get more money than we thought. And it, it carried us much farther than we thought, which was pretty cool. I mean, granted, it's, it's a small project, but it's nice when your money goes farther. Um, so a lot of it will just have to do with the planning. Uh, effective planning will always drive success if you're talking about campaigns or things like that. Yeah, awesome. Um, and, and did you guys launch with uh, just one uh, brew or did you have you know several different ones? Or how did you think about that? Yeah, we launched with our current bestseller, the Medium Roast Basecamp Blend, and our second bestseller, the, the Bold Awakening, which is our Dark Roast. And we just kept it simple. So that was it. And then shortly after launching, we came out with our Angel's Landing Light Roast so that we could enter the market uh, with a trio. 
but it was just the two rows to start. Okay. And then one of the, the cool things about your product too is the is the pour over uh, filter, the portable filter, disposable mm-hmm. one. How did you find out about that or how did you develop it? How did that go? The single serve pour over is a product that's actually existed in Asia for almost 10 years now, or maybe even more. And we had discovered it uh, when we were traveling uh, in Southeast Asia and someone had wanted us to try to sell it to the U.S. and said, no, we weren't interested. So um, the reason it became an interesting idea for us is because when we were on the camping trip, we thought, well, if instant coffee sucks, maybe we could bring one of these. And that's kind of like the connection between the idea and and how we really got started. Uh, The problem is no one was manufacturing these. This is not like trying to manufacture a new brand for popcorn or something. And we, the first set of innovation that we embarked on was actually supply chain. How, how can we create these things at scale? Um, and, and that's, that's kind of, that's really, that's really the biggest problem that that started out. And, And once we got past that, we were able to really, uh, think about a lot more things on the marketing side and revenue generation. Could you describe the filter for for those who haven't seen it? You know, and and what it is, what makes it unique? Yeah, so Kuju Coffee is a an outdoor pour over coffee brand, and we are pioneers in the single serve pour over format of brewing, which is essentially a pour over filter uh, with anchors uh, that expand out and anchor to your mug. Um, and this pour over filter also has coffee grounds uh, already ground and freshly sealed inside the filter. And that filter, therefore, is in a pouch. So what you end up with is a pouch about the size of a cliff bar. Uh, and if you're hiking or camping, you can open it up. Because it's nitrogen flushed, it's just as fresh as when it was ground. And you tear the filter open, you spread out the anchors, you can put it onto your mug. And so you have a pour over uh, uh, coffee experience that is possible with about three steps inclusive of pouring. Whereas if you had a, a real pour, it would take maybe seven or eight steps or more, depending if you're grinding your beans. So we make through this filter, uh, pour over coffee, very easy and accessible, uh, for maybe settings that you might not be able to bring all the equipment or might not have the, the space, uh, to do that. Okay. And you mentioned that uh, developing the supply chain uh, for this process, I mean, you had to find a manufacturer who could could actually do this. How did you go about that? Uh, and how did you find your manufacturer? Yeah, we didn't find a manufacturer. We just decided to be the manufacturer. So we own our uh, manufacturing equipment. And that kind of gives us, uh, early on, gave us the ability to actually produce when, when most people could not. Um, and, and that's that's a whole that's a whole different different thing. But um, we are a manufacturer. We don't co-man or anything, um, and and so we we have a direct line to to our supply chain needs in, in that regard. Okay, and you still manufacture internally uh, in house. You guys still do that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And how, and how have you thought about this? I mean, obviously there's, there's headaches and challenges that come with with manufacturing, and a lot of brands don't want to touch that or are, are intimidated by that. Um, and, you know, I can understand maybe doing it early on and then, you know, kicking it out to a, a co-man once you've figured out the process. Um, how are you guys uh, thinking about this? And why, why do you continue to manufacture today? 
I think it would be hard to go into detail on that without getting into potentially proprietary strategy pieces, but I, I can say the benefit of, of manufacturing is you are not necessarily always buying time or you don't, a, a co-man will always have its incentives and it's not necessarily to keep you stocked, put it that way. It's just to drive volume on their machinery. Um, and it adds an element of negotiation that you have to be really effective with. Um, and then you're also talking about varying levels of quality and control depending on what type of command you're going to. Um, that said, if you're trying to do uh, an RTD ready to drink beverage, there are so many people doing that. The commands for that have no need to do sales or marketing because they have so much demand. Um, so I think it would probably be a, 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 a two-factor consideration on what is the actual demand for co-manning a certain type of product uh, along the, the need to actually be able to manufacture it uh, fluidly. Because if you're doing an RTD, there's a lot of places that you can do it. It's probably not worth your time to try to figure out how to do it yourself unless you're starting out and you want to do it with a commercial kitchen. Um, but if you're trying to manufacture something that no one's really done before, uh, you, you know you, you have to be realizing that you might just have to figure it out yourself. Um, and but but that's not necessarily a downside because usually wherever there's pain and, and wherever this this question of like we don't know how to do it, no one's done it. That's usually where you can drive innovation, make more margin. Um, so I think it depends on the category, the industry, uh, the margin norms that you're you're dealing with within the industry. Um, and also the, the levels of expertise that you might have on your team. Um, some companies may opt to just start doing more manufacturing and then private labeling. But if you're passionate about building brands and you have a lot of people in marketing in your community and your network, maybe you want to build a brand and, and that's going to affect how you uh, deal with potential overhead of manufacturing. But the, the most important lesson probably is if you are manufacturing, doing it, outsourcing or whatever, it's important to realize that it's not, it's, it's just as difficult as sales. Uh, I, I think it's easy to think you turn a machine on and it cranks product out. It doesn't necessarily work like that. Everything breaks, supply chains get disrupted. Um, and, and so there's definitely a, 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 it would be a mature way to look at supply chain with the understanding that, that it does cause overhead if you don't give it the right attention and investment upfront. Understood. So I think we've, we've talked about, um, you know, product development, how you came up with the idea, um, how you went about producing it. Um, let's maybe switch gears a little bit to your distribution. Did you guys um, go D to C directly or did you, uh, you know, launch out and try to get these wholesale partnerships right away? No, it was wholesale in the beginning. It was, uh, we wanted to get into REI. That was really the first goal. And then after that, we wanted to get into Whole Foods. Um, and then everything outside of that was just like, let's see who else will buy our stuff. And we were fortunate because we did get into REI early on. Um, and we eventually got into Whole Foods, I think maybe two years later, uh, which doesn't sound like a long time. But for, you know, for a startup at zero revenue, you're thinking like, oh, I got to wait two years to get into that store. So Whole Foods in the grocery sector wasn't a big part of it. It was really about getting into outdoor retailers, uh, serving the outdoor community. Uh, and, and making sure that we could align the way we built the business with that customer base. 
since then, you know, we're in gift stores. Uh, we're landing in Costco's World Market nationwide, I think in May. Uh, we are nationwide in Strauss Farmers Market. Uh, you know, we're, we're in a number of places now, but but in the beginning, we started with one one channel distribution. And then as it is with many brands these days, a lot more T2C act activity is is kind of happening in the market. That's the same with us. But we continue to have a healthy wholesale business uh, alongside a, a growing D2C and online business. So it's just, you know, something that we have to manage as we, we play in both channels. And, and what's your breakdown, uh, D2C versus wholesale? Uh, breakdown, I, I probably wouldn't share the, the breakdown for proprietary okay. reasons. But for the most part, we were uh, mostly wholesale. Um, and I can say, I think last year, our D2C grew by about 185%. Um, so we have, we have a strong business on both sides. Um, I think we're just seeing a lot more growth happen on the DTC side, but, um, I, I think, you know, it depends on the channel too, like, like growth and presence in the gift, uh, channel is pretty different from outdoor as it is from grocery. And each of these channels, uh, are, are along a different spectrum of, of maturity as it is related to our product format. And so as it pertains to physical product, what, what that means is you deal with different supply chain challenges and margin expectations from each channel and retailer. Uh, D2C has a different supply chain you know, distribution need. And, and so I think understanding how to bridge all those through one core strategy over time um, is, tends to be the challenge towards, towards scale, which is what we're working on now. So it's, it can be crazy, but but I think it's kind of a fun thing once you kind of get a hold of, of exactly what's going on. Yeah, got it, got it. So it sounded like you were pretty focused on REI initially, like right out the gates. Was there any particular reasons why REI? Yeah, REI is probably the outdoor industry authenticator, which is what an outdoor executive told me uh, when we first uh, entered the market. And so we knew if we can get in there, uh, we would be seen as as very credible. I mean, just basically a big legitimizer. So uh, not only that, but they've proven to, to do very well for us. And, and we have a really solid relationship with them as well. Great. And you mentioned the, D, the D2C has grown quite a bit. Do you think that's an effect of the pandemic or what, what's driving that? Mm, not, not really. I, I think there's a little bit of that. Outdoor is definitely bigger, but I, I actually think it's just, if, if I can be Really, Frank, it's it's a combination of us just putting more investment into it, but also just our brand reaching an inflection point uh, where we just have more awareness, more people know about us. We are the highest rated single store on Amazon at 4.7 stars. Um, we're a close second in terms of number of, of reviews, but for an outdoor pour, we're, we're definitely the most. Um, and, and so I think when you put in the time to build brand foundations, get get things lined up properly. Um, the thing about physical products is it takes so much time to get them distributed that with every year that you exist, I, I think it actually increases the chances that you will continue to exist. As opposed to if you're a tech platform or product, if you don't skyrocket in the first three to four years um, with VC funding, you'll probably peter out just because it tends to be a winner-take-all kind of market. But for physical goods, I mean, there's trillions of coffee brands out there and, and there's enough space for us to be there. And the longer we're around, the more scale we get, the more efficiencies we get, uh, the more brand awareness we get. So you pay, you pay up front with the, the hard work, but 
Um, you know, it's the reason like a brand like Coca-Cola and Johnson Johnson stay around forever, but you can see other, other types of companies that might not be that type of physical product, um, kind of just disappear over time. Obviously there are exceptions, but, but I think generally that's kind of what I've seen. So why don't we just, um, you know, kind of wrapping up here. Uh, I just want to know what, what you're excited about, what's coming, coming up. What are you looking forward to? Um, you know, what's in store for Kuju coffee? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just always excited for camping season. It's, it's the most fun part of the company. Uh, and, and I'm excited to get people, uh, buying our pourovers for their camping trips. And obviously that's, you know, we want to grow, but, but we have so many people telling us stories about like my electricity went out and I couldn't use my coffee maker, but I had yours in my pack. So I, I'm so glad I, I bought yours or they, they have these memories of pouring uh, at the top of a mountain or something and just taking in the moment. Uh, and that's something we never expected to, to be able to build a brand where people attach these emotional experiences to our product because they're outside. If you're drinking coffee in, in your home, uh, you're not getting these impactful, you know, moments of experiencing your coffee, but, but we've been able to get to be part of that. So every year it's exciting to see, uh, that community just get bigger. So it, it's really a privilege to a certain extent because we can be part of people's, uh, memories, literally, even if they're just going camping once a year. Um, so that's always fun. Right. Right. All right. So just real quick, quick fire, quick fire round. We've got four questions for you. Um, what's one tool or resource that, that, uh, you feel like you just can't live without right now? Uh, I think coffee. Yeah. <laughs> that would, that would be one. I, maybe the second thing is, uh, I guess zoom that I don't know how, how that would work out, you know, without the video stuff. Right. Right. Um, what is uh, one book that has, uh, helped you in your career? One book, uh, I would say Michael Porter's competitive advantage. I read it years ago, but not the whole thing, but just getting some good business theory basics, I think is always helpful as, as a baseline. What is one piece of advice that you'd give to your 21 year old self? I would say you're just a real idiot and you can, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think just realizing that how, how little you don't know, uh, when you're at that age, but also just how darn okay it is not to know anything. And, and it gives you the permission to just try stuff. I, I, I think I was, I was that, but I think if I had known, I was, I was as, uh, I was as, as, as dumb and, and, and inexperienced as I really was, I might've even tried other things, uh, that would have been cooler. So. That's great. And, uh, who, who's one person that you would love to take to lunch? Uh, it's my wife. Yeah. Uh, we have two kids and we don't get to hang out, uh, as often as we'd like. So getting to go get lunch with her is always, uh, a positive. That's uh, maybe an unexpected answer. I think maybe a second answer would be just our customers. Uh, I think the best companies are always customer driven and, and they're the ones that matter. So getting a chance to have lunch with our customers and ask them questions, that would be great because that's always hard to do. All right, Jeff. And so if uh, somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, probably shoot me a message on LinkedIn. I get tons and tons of sales emails these days. Uh, so it's hard to shoot me an email for me to see it. Or you can uh, uh, send me a picture of the product that you just bought. Then, then you'll definitely get my attention. <laughs> 
And that's awesome. All right. And just uh, final words. Um, you know, there are people listening to this that are grinding it out in the world of physical products, you know, just doing the best that they can. Do you have any parting advice that you would give them? Yeah, I would say two things. Make sure you understand what the margin norms are for your category. So if it's typical to make 30% on a gross margin basis for a unit of product, try to shoot for that and exceed it. If it's 80%, shoot that and exceed it. Every industry is different. Um, but you need to know it because the closer you can get to it and the higher, uh, the better chance you'll have at succeeding over time. And the second thing is just acknowledge the fact that having a physical product is a very difficult thing that non-physical product companies don't have to deal with. So I would probably share an interesting anecdote on this. I went to a grocery trade show uh, years ago, went to the Kind Snacks uh, booth, and this dude was passing out samples. And I was like, oh, hi, can I ask you a couple questions? And he was like, yeah, I'm John. And then I, I looked at his badge and I said, who are you? I thought he was a sales guy. And it turned out he was president of Kind Snacks, uh, passing out things. And I said, do you have advice for us as we're starting out this coffee company? I thought he would ask, what is your brand? How are you going to sell? Where do you want to go? The first question he asked me was, how many units can you make? And that was a big deal because this is, you know, he helped take kind from 8 million to near 14 million to near a billion. And, and the first question he, he needed to understand was how many product units could we actually manufacture? And I understand now because you will only be able to market in proportion or as boldly as you want in proportion to the amount of product that you can make. Because if you can't make a lot of product, you are just inherently and subconsciously not going to want to sell it because you're not going to want to deal with making it. But if you can crank out a million units a day, you're just going to be able to let yourself go balls to the wall, sell to everyone and everything. Um, so really understanding the balance between manufacturing capability and capacity next to your sales and marketing and demand gen capacity. That's super critical for physical product companies. Hey, Jeff, that's awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic uh, final advice. I, I just want to, you know, thank you. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, thank you for for taking the time to to share with us today. I think this has just been a packed interview. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ken. Yeah. Have a good Friday. Have a good weekend. Uh, appreciate the chat. All right. We'll see you, man. Bye. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening. Real quick before this episode starts, I want to ask you, are you still using spreadsheets to manage your inventory, suppliers, co-packers, and production? Unless you're a wizard with sales and formulas, you can only grow so much with spreadsheets. When you're selling on your website, in retail stores, in online marketplaces, and more, it gets hard to track your inventory levels. Stockouts become a regular occurrence and fulfilling orders keeps you awake at night. Use Fiddle instead. Our software is built to help CPG businesses like yours scale more easily with constant insight into your inventory and production at all levels. 
Go to fiddle.io to learn more and schedule a personalized demo.